Welcome to the United Church Podcast. We're a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love and walking in the ways of Jesus. We're striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you're encouraged and challenged by this week's homily. May the peace of Christ be with you. God loves you. God loves you. It's a pretty easy phrase, right? We hear it everywhere we go. God loves you. In fact, I'm pretty sure that there isn't a space that anyone has ever been that they have not heard that before. Throughout the entirety of your life, you have at least heard that phrase once. And now I know for sure that you've heard it three times. Everywhere in our culture, everywhere in our society, that phrase seems to pop up at different places. Whether on TV shows, or in magazines, or in books, or in conversation, that phrase, God loves you, is almost everywhere that we turn and look as we walk through this life. I am pretty sure that if you look for it, and maybe after today you'll start to look for it just a little bit more, you'll start to see it popping up in all sorts of different places throughout our culture and throughout our society. In fact, you'll even see it on the guys that are walking down the street, the bullhorn preachers, right? Their signs will say, God loves you on one side, and then as they flip it over, but he wants to squash you like a bug. Right? But this rain of judgment is going to come down and God's wrath and his anger is going to flood into this world and lay waste to everything. Everywhere we look, that phrase can seemingly be found. I grew up with this understanding. I grew up with this understanding that God loves me. It wasn't hard for me to find everywhere, everywhere. I had my parents telling me, God loves you. God loves you. In fact, my uncle, who was a professor, every time I would go into his office, he was a professor at the school that I went to, every time I walked into his office, there was a little sign plastered on the top of his office uh, walls that said, tell the kids I love them, God Everywhere, this idea and this phrase that God loves me was pushed into my psyche. It was pushed into how I saw the world around me was this idea that God loves me. But, but, somewhere along the way, somewhere in my life as I continue to listen and try and grow and experience this God of love, other voices started to creep in. Like the bullhorn guy who just kind of says, yes, God loves you, but he also wants to kill you. God loves you, but he also kind of hates you. God loves you, but he also kind of wants to just put you asunder. He just wants to take you and dig you deep into a pit. Everywhere I turned, I started to see this new formulation of a God begin to form in my mind, begin to take root in my heart, That while God may love me, he secretly didn't really like me. And the reason why he didn't like me so much was because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't smart enough, and doggone it, people didn't like me. A little old for some of you guys. Stuart Smalley, SNL, it's okay. There we go. A couple people, thank you. (sighs) Anyhow. 
This God that just didn't think I was perfect enough, that I couldn't do anything right, that every time I attempted to step out, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't doing enough, I wasn't perfect enough, I wasn't contemplative enough, I wasn't spending enough time in prayer, listening to scripture, listening to the heart of God. I wasn't in these spaces or in these places, and so I started to have this idea that God didn't really like me all that much, and God was kind of upset with me, or frustrated with me, and sure, God loved me, but did he really like me? And I know I'm not alone in this. I know I'm not alone in this, and the reason why I know I'm not alone in this is because I've sat down with you. I've heard these from your stories. As we have sat together, it's, it's almost every single week. I'm pretty sure not a week goes by that I don't hear that phrase or a, a symptom of that phrase begin to pop out that this isn't too a part of your story. Is, in, in fact, just the other day I saw on a sign, a, a church sign that said, is COVID-19 judgment from God? Right? Like these ideas that God is just out here to squash us and push us down. And because I know that church, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to that. And it's that one of judgment, this God of judgment that just wants to push in on us. But we sit in this space. We sit in these questions of, does God really actually like me? It sits in the recesses of our hearts. And it sits in the recesses of our minds, chipping away at our psyche, chipping away at our heart, chipping it away at what it is that we see and how we understand God, of our feelings towards him. And so this season of Lent, which we started last week, this season of Lent, the 40 days that lead us up to Easter, we're sitting in this question, does God really like me? We're sitting in it heavy, and we want to sit there and kind of understand that there's this God that is somehow different than what it is that we have been led to believe. And last week, we jumped into this question headlong. We dove deep into the scriptures of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, kind of digging deep into what it looked like when we messed up. But what if, what if we have a God? What if we have a God who doesn't only like us, doesn't only love us, but a God that actually begins to believe in us? that his like for us is a little different than what it is that we've seen before. That God actually believes in us. That God actually believes in you. That God believes in me. More so than not only do we believe in ourselves, but more so than we actually believe in God. There's this fascinating passage in the Gospels in Luke chapter 9. Now, Luke chapter 9 is this really interesting space where Jesus has just gotten done healing a ton of people. I mean, a ton of people. There's, there's a moment in Scripture, just a few chapters before that, where people were coming to him in droves, and he was healing them of all sorts of infirmities, of all sorts of sicknesses, of all sorts of diseases. But then there are these special moments that begin to pop up throughout there as well, where God is actually healing paralytics. 
God is healing lepers. God is exercising demons from people. God is at work in people's lives. In fact, there's two moments where he raises people from the dead in the midst of this. And here in Luke chapter 9, he comes together with his disciples, with his 12. And the disciples at this point have seen some things, right? They've seen all of this unfold. Every single one of these moments, they have been present to see it unfold. And Jesus gathers his disciples together in Luke chapter 9, and he says, all right, your turn. Your turn. You get to go do what I have been doing. Your turn. Now, I'm a disciple. If I'm one of those 12, I'm standing there like, really? Really, Jesus? Like, I'm going to go cast out demons. Really? I'm going to go raise a little dead girl that we just saw from the dead? Really? I'm, I'm going to go heal paralytics, like people that just can't walk and have been sitting there their entire life. I'm just going to be like, hey, get up, bro. Let's go. That's going to happen? Are you sure? Because, Jesus, I'm not quite, uh, what? Right? Like, I, I can just hear their mental, like, conversations. And I'm sure, because they talked amongst themselves, I'm sure they were looking at each other like, uh, Peter, what is this? Are, are, are you serious? Right? And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, grabs these people together, and he tells them the four most powerful letters in the human language. I see in you. I see in you. Now, it's a letter because it's easier to remember, but I see with my eyes something in you. I see in you, these 12, who I've been hanging out with for a couple of years now, that we've gotten to know each other pretty well. I see something in you, and I think that you can actually do what I do. I think that you can actually go out and heal people. I think that you can actually go out and exercise demons. I think that you can actually go and raise little girls from the dead. I see this in you. I see it in you. And the disciples they may not quite see it in themselves. I think that's our story too. As God looks at us, he believes in us more than we actually believe in ourselves. He sees in us the total potential and possibility of what it is that he created in us to live out and to be. Jesus grabs these 12 together, and in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, he called them together, and he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He didn't just pull them together and say, hey, go, go do this thing. Good luck. You got this. I believe in you. He pulls them together and he empowers them to go and do it. He says, I believe in you. I believe in you. That's what empowerment is. It is belief in who we are. It is believing in us to such a degree. It is believing in another person to such a degree that you let them go and do what it is that they are capable of. 
And here is Jesus empowering the 12. You got this. You got this. All the authority is given to you to go and do these things. All the power is given to you to do these things. And then he gives them a few instructions where he just says, hey, don't take anything with you. No clothes, no bag, no, no food. Like, don't take anything with you. You're going to be good. And so they set out, and they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. They left that space with Jesus, and they went to go do what he empowered them to do. Now again, this is the first time they're doing this. Jesus says, I'm giving you the power. I'm giving you the authority to go do this. Can you imagine the first time they tried? As they walk to that very first town, as they encounter that very first sick person, they're like, that person's got leprosy. Uh, maybe we could try something easier. Right? Uh, who's got the common cold? Right? Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can get rid of that one. Right? Like, like as, they, as they begin to, like, get into these spaces with these people that are in these villages, as they walk in, as they develop relationships with people, as they talk with them and they say, hey, oh, that guy's blind. I mean, I saw Jesus do that, but, like, uh... Bro, open your eyes. Right? Like, it's just be like... Like, oh, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Have you ever been given power and authority in a space not knowing what was really possible? Not knowing the full extent of your power? So, funny story, uh, silly story. For three years, I've been the associate chaplain for the Sounders. And what's really great about this is I get this wonderful little red badge every time I go, and it's an all-access pass, right? It gets you anywhere and everywhere you want to go. And I remember the first time I got the badge, like the good badge. Like, there's several different ones, but this is the good one. I was like, what can I do with this, right? So, like, I was like, oh, let's just walk places. I walked out onto the sideline. I was like, ooh, this is kind of cool. All right, I walked into the tunnels. I walked into the locker room. I was like, yeah, that feels a little too much, right? Even though I had all of that access and all of that power, I was walking through, but really, really tentatively, like, I don't know what this does. And I just felt so kind of weird and guilty about it, right? Like that I had this power and this authority all in this little red badge. That somehow that little red badge gave me access to everything and anyone that I wanted access to. Last week, during the home opener, I took a friend with me, and we, I said, at the end of the game, I was like, hey, Mark, you want to see where we can go? Because he didn't have the little red badge, right? So I was like, hey, do you want to you see if we can get on the field? Like, the two of us. He was like, uh, yes, please. I was like, okay, let's do this. So we're walking through, and I, I get to the first entry point, right? The first place of, like, Sorry, I need to see the little red badge. Here it is. She's like, all right. I was like, he's with me. Go on in. <gasps> Whoa. We're in the tunnel on the way down into the bellows of the, sta of the stadium. And I was like, 
all right. And Mark, like Mark, he was like a little little boy at school, like like on, on Christmas. He was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is working. I was like, I can't either. <laughs> I'm really surprised. This is awesome. And so we make our way down just a little bit further, and we get to the second major point. And this one, this one is the one right before you get onto the field, and they're always super sticklers. They're like, I have to examine the little red badge. It's like, okay, well, I've been here before. I know this. I know this part. And it was like, and yours, sir? And I was like, oh, he's with me. I'm like, please, have at it. And I was like, oh, well, all right then. I have power to bring people wherever I want to go. And last night, I got to take Tracy and Elliot onto the field with me after the game. For the first time, three years, they've been going with me to these games, right? Like just exploring and experiencing, but never taking them into the spaces that only I could go. Because I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think the power that I had in this silly little red badge was really all that powerful. And here I see the disciples. They've been given all of this power and all of this authority. And the first time they use it, I think they use it like that. Like, oh, it's the common cold, right? That'll work. And, and, and then maybe like a month later, they're like, oh, let's experiment with something else. Because we don't know just how long these disciples were on this journey. It could have been longer than a month. It could have been two months, three months. It could have been a year. We don't know how long they were gone because the text doesn't tell us. But we know that they traveled from village to village to village to village, exercising this power, growing into this power, understanding more and more and more that God really does believe in them, that God really sees them differently, that he truly does love them and says, go and change this world around you. And as they do, as they're on this journey, as they're in this space, as they're in this place, making all of these changes, doing all of these miracles, quite literally changing the fortunes and the lives of every single person around them, the political establishment takes notice. In verse 7, Herod. Herod the Tetrarch begins to take notice. Now, Herod was kind of like the ruler over this whole area. He begins to take notice of what it is that is happening around them. He sees all of these things, and he's perplexed. He's confused. What is going on here? I thought I squashed this whole movement when I beheaded John the Baptist. I thought I had taken care of these little gnats. I thought I had taken care of this thing. Like, what is going on? And so he sought to see him. He tried to see this Jesus in this movement that was beginning to take place. Now, again, we have no idea just how long, just how long that they were out, just how long that they were gone. We don't know what it is that they did exactly in every single town that they went to. But in verse 10, they did come back. When the apostles, which just means sent ones, right, which is actually kind of beautiful, like they were sent out by Jesus. When the sent ones returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, which is kind of a funny word, that word, reported. Hey, boss, I got my TPS report. <laughs> Right? Like, like th th this is sort of like this, this whole detailed report of, on day one at 9.05 a.m., I went to this house, 
and I was there for 10 minutes. Right? Like, I think of like this detailed, like chronicled moment by moment report. Probably not. I'm sure they may have had journals that they kept. They may have scribbled stuff on some paper. But I think for the most part, they were thinking and remembering all of these stories, all of the things that had happened to them, all of the things that they were participating in, all of the beautiful life that was being created all around them in this space and in this moment. And they started to talk to Jesus and share these stories. And it says, in the late afternoon, in the late afternoon, they were all together sharing these stories all day long. And in the late afternoon, these 12 had returned. And with them, a crowd of 5,000 people had joined them. As they tried to get away to rest from this journey, from these travels, from this massive experience, 5,000 people began to crowd around them. And they say, hey, Jesus, we should probably take a break. We should probably let all these people who are now listening to these stories, who are reliving the stories. You see that guy? That's the guy that I healed from blindness three months ago. He's, he's been with us ever since. Like, he can't stop following us around. And he's reliving his story right now as I tell this. Like, like Jesus, we should probably let them go eat. Let's just let them go wander back into the town and they can go eat. And Jesus, Jesus looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. You do it. You give them something to eat. To which they're like, what? It's almost like they have jumped right back into that very first moment where Jesus says, all power and authority has been given to you. And they jump back into that moment. They're like, we can't do that. And Jesus is probably looking at them like, have you heard the stories you have been telling me? Have you heard? Of, you made people walk again. And you can't give these people something to eat? Is this too big for you? Are you serious? Like you just kind of hear Jesus' like perplexity and like, tell me again why you can't do this. And so Jesus invites them into that moment because he believes in them. He invites them into that moment and he says, let's see what we got. And they come back with these baskets. They bring to him what it is that he will multiply to the crowd. I see in you. I believe in you. He invites them to participate and to gather what is there to be a part of the next thing, to show them, no, believe in yourself. Believe in what it is that you are, what is possible in and through you. Do this. Do this because it's possible. You see, from the foundations of the universe, God has had a plan. From the very foundations of the universe, when he conjured up this whole idea of earth and creation and of humanity, he had this plan. He had this idea of what it was that we would be and what it was that we would do. He had a belief in us as a people. And we marred it. We blew it. We didn't quite live up to that plan. And we destroyed and dashed God's plans. We messed it up. But God did not stop dreaming about what could happen through us, his people, because of him, because of what it was that he was doing in us. 
He set out to draw us back into that plan, back into that dream, and to show us the good life, to show us what is possible. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann wrote in his book, The Source of Life, the ultimate reason for our hope is not to be found at all in what we want, what we wish for, and wait, and wait for. The ultimate reason is that we, you and me, are wanted. We are wished for. We are waited for by God. God wants to be with you. God has a dream in his mind for us as his people. And he is waiting, waiting, waiting for us to live into that space. God loves you. God likes you. But even more, God believes in you. See, I think oftentimes we are functional atheists in how we live our life. We are functional atheists. We are in search of a God who reveals himself in the story, in the story of Scripture. We look for that God who reveals himself there and in experiences that will bring us this abundant life. And so, in that search, we begin to deconstruct this God. We deconstruct this God whom we have turned into the angry God. The God who is the judgment God, who is just there to squash us like a bug. And so we just continue to dissect him into pieces and parts. We pull away the parts that don't jibe with our understanding of a God of love. And for some of us, our whole concept of what love is has been so marred and so tarnished by trauma, by abuse from parents, or abuse from religious institutions and religious structures, or abuse from other people who we have considered friends that turned their back on us and betrayed us and walked away. There are some of us who are here that have those experiences of trauma, and so our understanding of love has been completely tainted, has been completely tarnished, has been completely marred. And so we can't find that God of love as a result. We search and search and search, but we have either found ourselves in one of two places. We've either deconstructed God to the point of nothingness, to where we are no longer just functional atheists, but atheists in general. There is no God. There is no God. There is no God. Or B, we have found ourselves holding on to a faith in a God of marred love. A God who more closely resembles the bullhorn man that stands and proclaims God is love on one side, but wants to crush you and kill you on the other. This is why community is so important. The 12 went out together. Two by two, three by four. They went out together in a group, not on their own. They went out into these places and these spaces where God had empowered them to go to believe in themselves. They went together. And on that journey together, they experienced, they experienced the encouragement of one another. They experienced the joy of one another. They experienced the love of one another together in this place 
in that time, together, together, they did it. You see, we cannot deconstruct everything. We cannot deconstruct everything because deconstruction ad nauseum ends in nothing. You are left with nothing. We must at some point begin the process of reconstructing who it is that this God of love really is. And community draws us into that. Which is why we talk so much as a church about our vision and our mission. You will never walk alone. We believe that. We're working towards that more and more every single day. That as the disciples go out and they do their thing empowered, we too go out and do that thing together, empowered, not alone, but with one another. Community is a foundational aspect of God's belief in us. Belief in us. And so let us hold that. Let us believe in that together. Let's take a moment and pray. God, thank you. Thank you for gathering us together this morning in this place. Gathering us together as a church, as a community. For those that are online watching and participating in this. Father, that they too are not alone in this space, which is why we have created that. For us here together, why we meet every single week, Father, it's because we will never walk alone, but in that knowing and encouraging every single one of us to believe that God loves us, that God likes us, and that God believes in us. Father, continue to encourage us, continue to press us forward. It is in your Son's precious name that we pray all of these things. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us at 1316 Third Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.